0: Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Preparis, and I have a guest joining me today, but let me first uh, give you a message from our sponsors. So this episode is brought to you by Rock Tape. You may know Rock Tape. It's that uh, KT, KT tape that's typically on athletes uh, for joint stability and mobility, but they also have some other great products. So their they're kind of thing is they're more than a tape company. They're a movement company. So I just picked up a couple of their Rock Sauce, which is – if you're familiar with, you know, like Icy Hot or Bengay type stuff, it's very similar but a lot nicer. It comes in this little canister and it essentially rolls on so you don't have to get it all over your hands if you don't want to. And they have a fire version and they have an ice version. So it's kind of like one's the one's the icy version and one's the hot version. Uh, big fan of the fire, definitely check it out. It's actually got capsaicin in it, so like the stuff that makes spicy food hot. And when you put it on your joints or, or your sore muscles, you can really feel the burn in there. So definitely like that stuff. Check it out if uh, you're into that kind of topical cream stuff. Joining me today, I have Luke Labonte. He's a nutritionist, nutritionist, dietitian. He has a master's degree. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, Works at a D1 university, trains college athletes, and does a lot of OCR in his spare time. So he's also on the uh, strength and speed team. The man knows his stuff. So Luke, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be here as always, man.
0: Yeah, I thought you had some really good input on the last show, and we mentioned it on that one that we wanted to bring you back and talk about nutrition in OCR. So I guess let's let's start with the basics, right? So you know, I know I know nutrition's a pretty you know pretty contested topic. You know, like you know if you've heard the phrase uh, the phrase you know uh, opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one, and they all stink. Uh, I think a lot of people feel that way about nutrition, right? So, you know, whatever whatever diet people are on, they're convinced, like, this is the only way to eat, and this is what you have to do. So, like, let's start off with what what are some important aspects of an OCR athlete diet? We'll go from there.
1: Oh, jeez, Man, it's funny that you mentioned this. I am literally looking into getting a custom sign for my door on my office at work, and I want to say, leave your anecdotes in the hall. <laughs> because I'm just like, like you're saying, everyone has an opinion, um, and I appreciate everyone having their own anecdote. Because, of course, you know they're they're experts in their own body, but don't push on everyone else. But anyway, all my jesting aside, um, so there are a variety of factors that will play into an OCR athlete's diet, um, whether that's training volume, goal, frequency. Um, gender, height, weight, body composition, age, genetics, food preferences, allergies, ethics, like so much will go into it. Um, there is no one size fits all with diet, of course, but there are some general guidelines that I think are very important. And, um, I've actually adapted my own sort of pyramid from Dr. Eric Helms and he has this hierarchy of nutrition needs. And I'll explain his, and I'll kind of explain mine a little bit. Mine mirrors his very similarly, but I have a, a few differences in opinion, as you would say. Um, so, of course, at the base of the pyramid, first and foremost, it's important to have adequate energy to maintain or improve um, exercise performance, which is something that I agree with. Um, his next step up the pyramid would be macronutrients. Then he goes in the micronutrients. Uh, meal composition, timing, and then he tops off at the very end with specific supplements. Uh, I agree with that for the most part to an extent. I, uh, I go back and forth between, you know, the importance of micronutrients and macronutrients. I think they're both so equal in different ways. That's hard to say, but of course, so my end working the way up, of course, adequate energy to maintain or improve performance. Um, as well, going into that, so like micronutrient needs, of course, you need your vitamins and minerals for metabolic processes, be able to metabolize and perform at a high level. So that really goes into a variety of diets, so incorporating a lot of different foods and make sure you're getting your nutrients from plenty of different sources. Um, and of course, macronutrient distribution, this is an area that is hotly, I guess you could say debated among numerous individuals. Um, which I agree, and I don't think this is one thing. I don't think there's one size fits all, especially a lot of new research is going into genetics, like what macronutrient distribution is optimal for health and performance based on your genetics. And that goes more into, like, nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics, which I won't touch too much today. I can go down the rabbit hole. but um, And then even inside of macronutrient distribution, like, you know, how much macros, you know, what percentage of each. Um, you know, distribution for meal, meal frequency, all of that, you know, it just keeps going on and on down the rabbit hole. Um, and then, of course, I agree in, you know, nutrient timing, especially peri-exercise or around exercise, um, especially because nutritional habits during this window is one of the best ways to improve your performance and enhance recovery. Um, and, again, depending on the athlete's goal, you know, Peri exercise, macronutrients, timing will change. But Hank. So, the long and short of it is, it's going to look different in everyone. But follow that general guideline and make sure to, you know, cover your bases before you take the next step.
0: Okay, so lots of information there. Let's <laughs> let's try to break it down a little simpler. So, g- can you give us some like general rules? Like, have you heard the? Have you heard the the saying or the phrase? You know, basically stick to the outside of the supermarket because that's where all the real food is, or anything like that. Are you familiar with that phrase?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've done those fun supermarket tours with your your general population, <laughs> but they just want to go to the middle aisle and, and grab the Hostess sweet cakes and all that good stuff. But. I would tend to agree with that. Um, you know, you'll find more of your perishable foods towards the outside of the supermarket, and your perishable foods more or less being your more fresh, more nutritionally dense foods. So, of course, your fruits, your vegetables, um, your lean meats, your dairy. Um, you know, you can get your cereals in there, your starches, um, beans, legumes, nuts, seeds, all that good stuff. I definitely think there's a lot of value. And following more of a lower processed diet—I not want to say entirely non-processed—but there's a lot of value in that, um, as evidenced by research out there with, you know, satiety, exercise performance, nutritional value in foods, and et cetera, et cetera. So I would, I would definitely agree with that statement.
0: Okay. Um, so is there a difference? Should athletes be different eating differently on training days versus non-training days? And then, kind of, what would that look like?
1: That is an absolutely wonderful question and I get really excited over some of these topics. So again, it will vary differently depending on the training day, what they're doing that day for, of course, their exercise, um, as well as the goal of the athlete, but I'll kind of break it down a little bit more. Um, you hear me talk about peri exercise related nutrition around exercise nutrition very frequently. And that's something that I take very seriously. Um, So, of course, I'll dive a little bit into that, and then I could talk about a little bit about differences between training day and non-training day. Um, So, everyone, first, I'm going to address the myth, like, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. That's kind of bunk. That's debunked in research. Like, I, I won't talk too much about caloric restriction or intermittent fasting unless we go down that hole, but... I would tend to believe that the most important timing for nutrition around the day is around your exercise. Um, so depending on the kind of exercise. I could agree with oh, that. Well, oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, of course. I think like a lot of people, it, it sounds like pretty straightforward, but a lot of people like once they hear it, they're like, oh yeah, that does sound like it would be, you know, prioritized. But I guess it's like sometimes you need someone to turn on that light for you or ring that bell. But um, so of course, before what about, exercise, what
0: about I mean, the uh, the massive gains you get? You know, like so I come from a bodybuilding background, and everyone's like, "Oh, you gotta start eating protein as soon as you wake up, otherwise your muscles start atrophying."
1: Oh my god! <laughs> like I like the whole you need to eat twelve meals a day and have this much protein per meal and all that. Like it's it's nonsense. I'm going to be the first one to tell you. Everyone on the podcast waves. If you do not eat for 12 hours, you are not going to have any catabolic effects. You're not going to lose your biceps. for not eating overnight. <laughs> like, this is the reality of it. There's a lot of mechanisms built in our body, um, differences in hormonal environments between fed and fasted states. Like, you're, you're not going to lose muscle. You're not going to lose gains. Um, you know, some individuals, and this goes a little bit more into weight management, Some individuals will even see benefit from undergoing caloric restriction windows or, you know, some more of those intermittent fasting techniques might be a little bit more ideal for weight management or body composition changes, Um, as well as this delves a little bit more into the question between the training day and non-training day. Um, If an athlete is trying to maintain a strict weight range, carbohydrate cycling can also be a valuable tool inside of that. So, of course, what I mean is, You know, on days that are higher intensity or higher volume, emphasize more carbohydrate around exercise, especially in that post-exercise window for recovery. Um, And then as well, let's say if you have a, a day where you're, you know, sitting inside your boxers watching cops all day, you probably don't need to consume nearly as many carbohydrates.
0: Very good points. I found that, so when I was like cutting weight for a show, I found that um, the lots of small meals would kind of keep me, like I wouldn't get ravenously hungry. Like if I wait, if I missed the meal or went like what it would be in like a normal period, like morning breakfast to lunch, as opposed to eating two small meals, I would be like ravenously hungry, and then I would be more likely to like stray off of essentially what my diet was at the time. So,
1: yeah, and that's that's definitely a good point to make. Like some individuals do better on certain diet patterns, and. A lot of that can be related to circadian timing or kind of like cues provided by our bodily clocks. And we have the capability of shifting those to a certain you know, extent. So someone who would prefer to do longer fasting windows can. Um, and the great thing is like so a lot of times our hunger is stimulated by a decrease in blood glucose. And that's oftentimes when our liver glycogen is depleted after like 12 hours Um, So at that point, we'll get these sensations for hunger. And especially if you're already in a hypocaloric state, like it's very hard to resist those sensations. But, you know, there's some um, some abilities or rather some techniques um, that you can implement that will help you control hunger a little bit more. Well, I guess you would say a little bit more tolerable and then. As well, it will lead more into an alternative fuel usage, so your by switch more from a carbohydrate stance to more of a fat stance as far as energy utilization. But I know uh, looking at our podcast notes, we'll talk a little bit about that in the future, so that will be a, a fun note just to, I guess you could say, allude to what's going to come.
0: All right. <clears throat> so over the over the last couple of years it seems like there's always new diet coming out, you know, you look on Facebook and people are like I'm doing this diet, I'm doing that diet. So how do you recommend people tell the difference between fads and stuff that'll be gone in a year or two versus like actual healthy diets?
1: That is an absolutely great question. So fad diets can be identified through, you know, for some people it's very hard to kind of conceptualize what's good and what's bad. And I can understand there's a lot of misinformation spreading through Facebook and Instagram and, you know, your Pinterest. Um, First thing that I usually look for, if it sounds really cool, it might be a fad. So just stylish or catchy names. Um, Oftentimes they'll make claims that are too good to be true. Like let's say, for example, like you read a diet and it's like, you'll lose 10 pounds of fat in a week. And I'm sitting here thinking like, that is mathematically impossible. Like, like for someone to lose 10 pounds of fat a week, like that's just, it's just very unrealistic and your body at a standpoint would not even burn that many calories in a week. So people don't think mathematically and they get deceived by that. Um, another trigger is if it's an advocate for a company's product or service. Like, that's a big one. They're like, oh, try this new supplement diet, but, you know, to improve your gains from it or improve your losses, use our, our, use our products that will, you know, facilitate that. Like, that's, that's usually a big, a big, uh, check for that. Um, as well as lack scientific research, like any good diet will have a foundation of research behind it. Like, if you, like, scroll through PubMed or, you know, you go through some scholarly areas or, like, even the website that's um, advocating this diet doesn't link any scientific research behind it. It's probably bunk. I would probably not follow that. Um, if it emphasizes good and bad foods lists. That's oftentimes a huge, like, catch for me. Like, if it's, like, never eat these foods and only eat these foods, I'm like, yeah, that's not sustainable, and that's probably robbing you of some nutritional value in some sense. Um, but those are really, like, you know, five or six really big triggers that would catch me for identifying a fad diet.
0: Right on. So with that, let's kind of run through a couple of the popular diets that you see people post- posting about all the time right now and just kind of give me your thoughts you know let's let's assume all our listeners are you know ocr are probably all listeners are ocr athletes right but um (laughs) so like let's let's keep it as it relates to ocr you know um so whether they're good or bad for ocr or maybe you know just kind of things to watch out for if you're following that type of diet and you're still planning on doing races um and again kind of keep it between uh you can cover open you know, if it's different between open and maybe elite or open and competitive, uh, I guess talk about that too. So let's let's start off with uh, ketogenic. Oh, uh, I guess give it, okay. give a quick definition of what it is uh, in case some of our listeners aren't tracking. So ketogenic diet.
1: Awesome. So the ketogenic diet is generally a diet with the goal of utilizing fat as a primary fuel source, um, i.e., production of ketone bodies. That's where like ketogenic, like creating ketones. Um, Oftentimes, it requires restriction of carbohydrate or caloric restriction windows, things of the sort. And, of course, uh, ketones, or our three ketone bodies, are beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, and acetone. They're produced in the liver from fatty acid when the liver glycogen is depleted, a little bit like I mentioned before. Um, So I'll kind of address some general health misconceptions about this because a lot of people mix up ketosis And ketoacidosis, so when someone enters a state of ketosis, it's it's essentially the presence of ketone bodies and upregulation in the production or utilization of fat. Um, Ketoacidosis is a combination of high blood glucose and ketone bodies, which creates a dangerous environment um, inside the body. It's very acidic, offsets the pH, So individuals with diabetes often may develop ketoacidosis, but the two are not the same. Like you can be in a healthy state of ketosis without necessarily being in ketoacidosis. So uh, talking a little bit how this applies for OCR athletes, um, working in the fact that you mentioned, like if, if you're like an open wave athlete or a competitive, like even a lower end competitive wave athlete, um, you could probably get by on this. Um, you know, I will say that for your top level athletes, like it's not necessarily bad, but it's not optimal for OCR performance because the sport has varying intensities that accompany the races um, as well as, you know, you're, you're wor- working throughout energy zones. Like if you're a straight endurance athlete, like if you're a cyclist or a runner, or if you're, you know, you're open wave that's not really working into any high-intensity zones, you could probably get away with pretty good success on a ketogenic diet. But essentially, being in a state of ketosis may limit the utilization of carbohydrate stores and limit that high-intensity performance that, you know, some of the elites absolutely need. And this applies, same, for the exogenous ketone supplements, whether it's the ketone salts or the esters. I know these have become super popular inside of a lot of populations like your CrossFit, your dieters and things like that, because they help accelerate your ability to get into ketosis and, and use ketone bodies for fuel. But I will say that they will limit your high intensity performance. And there is research supporting that. So if anyone wants to call me out and think (laughs) it's not like, like everything I say, unless like I, I always tell my clients this, like any statement I make will be backed by research and if it's my opinion, I'm probably going to tell you it's my opinion beforehand. Um, and then I will have one last point about the ketogenic diet. So I have no problems with it. I know a lot of individuals who see a lot of benefit for it or while on it, um, even though I do not think it's optimal for OCR performance as we know it. I do have a problem with what I call the fake keto diets. So it's these diets that boast excessive protein, And restriction of carbohydrates, but they do very little to upregulate their fats. So, like I, it's just silly to me because a true ketogenic diet contains fifteen to twenty-five percent protein, five to ten percent carbohydrate, and approximately sixty to eighty percent fats as energy, but you'll see these people on this fake keto diet with this huge amount of protein because some bodybuilder told them they needed to eat two grams per pound. And that excessive protein goes through a process in the body. A lot of my uh, biochemists or people who have taken the biochem or chemistry in general will recognize this term, the gluconeogenesis. So essentially when you consume too much protein, your body will utilize or go through gluconeogenesis It essentially just makes glucose out of non-carbohydrate sources, i.e. protein. So you can see an elevation in blood glucose and prevention of ketone body production through eating too much protein. So like people are like, oh, I feel like crap on the ketogenic diet, like I can't get into ketosis, I'm doing everything right. I'm like, A, if you want to be on a ketogenic diet, fine, I'll work with you. But B, like don't don't do this fake keto because you're shooting yourself in your foot eating like six hundred grams of protein a day. That's just silly. <laughs> All right. All
0: right, let's uh next one, uh paleo.
1: Paleo diet. So I, I have worked with uh, my fair share of athletes who follow a fairly strict paleo diet. Um, my first question is like, why do you hate yourself so much? Like, why do you want to put yourself through this? Like, um, it's it's not bad. It's just like there's they're omitting foods that don't absolutely need to be omitted. the The principles are of the diet is based on us eating foods that were presumed to be consumed by our ancestors during the Paleolithic area, i.e. Paleo. Um, you know, it generally includes meat, fish, vegetables, your fruit, nuts, seeds, tubers, um, and it excludes dairy or grain products, so your bread, your pastas, your rice, corn, cereals, and processed food. Like I said, I think there's a lot of value out of eating a non-processed diet and choosing, you know, healthful forms of food. But you're potentially omitting a lot of foods that will provide some nutritional value that you don't need to provide. And I hate to say it, but, like, it's 2017. Like, if you're omitting bread, pasta, rice, cereal, things like that, without a need to, I just, I just don't understand why, like, why you would do that to yourself, like, unless you have food sensitivities, or enzymatic deficiency, there's no need to omit those foods, like, they're not necessarily unhealthful for you, like, let's say cereals, for example, like, oatmeal, like, high in starch, as far as carbohydrate, um, Moderate, like a fair source of protein. Great source of soluble fiber. Great for heart health and reducing cholesterol. Like, why? I almost dropped the swear word. I apologize. Why would someone do that?
0: <laughs> it's all right. I do it all the time. Not all, all right, the time. I do well, it occasionally. Like, I do it occasionally. I was like, illicit
1: question mark.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's a there's a great. TED talks uh, by a forensic anthropologist talking about the paleo diet, and she doesn't argue whether it's healthy or not. She just points out that if your logic is you're doing this diet because this is what paleo man ate, she's like, I'm here to tell you this is nothing like what paleo man ate. And she like goes, back, <laughs> she goes back and she's like, you know, this is what a carrot looks like in the wild. You know, and it's like this tiny, shriveled, like whitish-looking thing. And she's like, essentially, we've you know we've genetically bred and selected for certain traits, you know by being like, all right, well this this batch of carrots grew good, so I'm gonna keep planting ones from that kind of, you know, um, mm-hmm. genetic strain, and it it exaggerates some of the uh, attributes of them. So she points at that one. She points out essentially like broccoli, cauliflower, and um, what was the third one? There's another vegetable. It's the same species. They've just been bred differently over the years. So it's actually the same thing. And uh, it's just a very interesting – I thought it was a very interesting um, TED Talk. So I'll try to post a link to that if I remember on uh, the Strength and Speed page for you guys to check out.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to read that for my own entertainment. Uh, But I I agree. Like Humans have been selectively modifying and – I guess you could say genetically modifying, choosing crops for thousands of years. Like recently we've gotten really good at it, don't get me wrong, and I won't delve down the whole of genetic modification or GMOs because that's just going to open up a can of worms and I don't think we want to cover for the OCR athlete. No, we'll pass on that. Yeah, but I guess in summary, like the the paleo diet's not – bad like you can get some healthful benefits from it but if you want to be a masochist and just do it because you hate food and you hate yourself why not
0: here's my general opinion on a lot of these diets most people are generally eating like crap so anything where they're changing their diet and actually like paying attention to what they're eating i think shows some sort of signs of improvement that's why everyone thinks you know oh this is the only way to eat because because they previously they were eating garbage and now they're eating you know actual food maybe a little bit less garbage and they're getting some results that way. Just my two cents.
1: You sound like a dietitian already. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I, So, I mean, you know, with, you know, dieting for shows and uh, the fact that I've done like strength sports and endurance sports, you know, I have played around with some diets and, um, you know, I was on a very low carbohydrate when I was trying to lose fat and it worked great for fat reduction and I felt like hot garbage pretty much all the time (laughs) you know I felt okay at the beginning but once my body fat started getting down low like I started feeling like terrible like I'm talking you're walking around you're like I need to lay down I think I'm gonna black out (laughs) you know um that's like the last couple weeks before a show though
1: so oh my god I I think uh we spoke in the past like I did bodybuilding as well it's just like flashback of me like like before my show, I remember like I was done with a shift at work. I was like, I'm too tired to go up these stairs. They're like, you squatted for like 15 sets. I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I'm gonna take the elevator today.
0: <laughs> nice. All right, let's keep uh, let's keep moving along. So uh, vegan for the next one.
1: Mm, vegan. I'm going to group vegetarian and vegan together okay. with this one just because I think uh, there's a lot to talk about and I think they'll work hand in hand with each other. Um, so there's there's several different I guess you say levels of vegetarianism, um, and that goes from ovo consumption of eggs, lacto consumption of dairy product, pesca consumption of fish, um, and then vegan or your strict absolutely no animal product, excuse me, and then sometimes um, lifestyle revisions like not wearing leather clothes or using products that were manufactured from animals and things of the sort. And then there's like a, a more popular term, um, flexitarian, essentially someone who will eat a, a fairly plant-based lifestyle and also include some animal foods sparingly regardless of the form. You know, they just kind of follow their own intuition, which I like. Um, but anyhow, so these diets are growing in popularity due to a lot of reasons. Um, some big ones are environmental sustainability, health claims, animal rights, ethics are oftentimes the big ones. Um, but I will say, so I I oftentimes don't share this with a lot of my clients. But hey, I'm I'm on the air, so why not share it with uh, the podcasting people? So I actually follow a vegetarian type diet. Uh, I guess by definition, you can call me ovo-lacto-pescatarian. Um, ovo-lacto, I consume eggs and I consume dairy product, and then pescatarian, I take a fish oil supplement. So by default, I am consuming fish. Um, but I will say, so it is possible to find success and optimize performance on these diets. Um, but it does make it significantly more difficult. And this is related to nutrition pairings that you have to do for optimal absorption, Um, making sure that you're monitoring consumption of anti-nutrients, that you can consume too much from some grains or teas or coffees. Um, Also related to nutrient bioavailability, because oftentimes an animal-based food will have an improvement in absorption over a plant-based food. Um, And, of course, there's, like, your nutrients of concern. So the big ones are often, like, your B12, your iron, your zinc, your calcium, protein, vitamin D, iodine, um, things of the sort. So I think it's definitely possible for athletes at all levels of the sport to see healthful benefits from this diet. Um, I am not your popular angry vegetarian. I do not like scoff at people who eat like a, an eight ounce steak in front of me. I'm like, I hope your steak tastes good. Like, good for you. <laughs> like, I. <laughs> I mean, I don't proper, eat-
0: have you ever seen that? Um, what's the uh, J.P. Sears has a yeah. <laughs> has a YouTube uh, video where he's a a meatitarian or something where he only eats yeah. meat, and he essentially does the reverse, right? So he's like. He's eating meat and like judging people for eating a salad in front of him. It's really funny.
1: <laughs> You're disgusting me with that. How can you eat that? Yeah. I'll try yeah, to
0: sure. post. I'll, I'll try to post that link too if uh, if I remember.
1: I love that video. Please do. Um, and then I hope my fiance doesn't get angry. I'm going to use her as an example. So I definitely think that some people see more benefit out of consuming a diet with some animal-based product. Um, for example, she does have some history of some, without going into too much detail, she has some history of some mineral deficiencies where she probably should be eating more animal products because it's more bioavailable and it's going to be better for her health. You know, so there's individuals with those kind of backgrounds that probably should be consuming, you know, a little bit more animal product because when it comes down to it, our bodies weren't made to survive under vegan conditions. Like, take it from someone, I have been a vegan. I have no problem with vegans. I work with vegans. I've worked with very successful vegans. But, for example, like vitamin B12, like, for the most part, that's only found inside of animal foods. Like, there are very scant... Amounts found in certain plant foods that are even if you consumed like two pounds of out al- or was it algae or seaweed like you're not gonna get enough B12 like that's just one example um, as well as we don't have the colon capacity to break down high amounts of fiber like our let's say our genetic cousin the gorilla very large colon has an ability to break down fruit and vegetable a lot more. I guess you could say effectively than we could, um, and that also goes in the gut microbiome as well.
0: I had no idea of the uh, the gorilla's colon. This is fascinating. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> just, just lots of good information on this podcast today.
1: I could like fit my head in a gorilla colon. That's good.
0: <laughs> that's good. that's great to know. Creating um, an image for everyone at home. <laughs> cool. Any uh anything else you want to touch on for the vegan vegetarian? Sorry, I interrupted.
1: Oh no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm pretty chilled and I, I'm, I'm pretty laid back. Um, you know, really, I, I will say for individuals who want to follow this diet, it is possible to optimize it for performance and you can get a lot of success or success out of it. I just think individuals should ask themselves why before they go towards a strict sense of vegetarian if they have a really good reason for it. I'm definitely supportive. Um, And of course, you know, coming from a vegetarian dietitian, I think nearly all individuals will find a large benefit in a plant-based diet, but it is possible to have a plant-based diet and still consume an adequate amount of, you know, animal product to supplement that. And essentially, it's reaching the point of diminishing returns with plant-based products, so eating enough so you get the optimal benefits, and if you eat any more, there won't be any be any more benefits than eating that certain amount, so... Let's just say, for example, for athlete A, their optimal amount is six or seven servings of plant-based food. And they eat that six or seven servings. It doesn't matter if they eat eight, nine, or ten. They're not going to see any more benefit. So they may see more benefit from including, you know, some more healthful, um, environmentally sustainable sources of animal-based food um, placed in that diet.
0: All right. Um, Let's talk about the glycemic index and eating low glycemic foods. So let's start off with kind of what is glycemic index and low glycemic foods and then kind of your opinion on uh, people using that as a large portion of their diet.
1: That is a wonderful question. So the glycemic index is generally a value that is assigned to foods based on how slowly or how quickly those foods can increase the blood glucose levels. And this applies to carbohydrate-containing foods. So it deals a lot with, like, insulin sensitivity. Like, and I won't talk too much about glycemic load or how much food. We'll go into, like, the glycemic index. But, excuse me, just know that a high glycemic index food, will stimulate a quicker increase in blood glucose and the low glycemic index food will stimulate a slower, um, more gradually increasing blood glucose.
0: So give give a couple examples before we move forward.
1: Low, yeah. So let's say a low glycemic index. It's got to be most of your vegetables, so especially like green leafy vegetables, your cruciferous vegetables – Beans, um, whole grains, high in fiber, non processed cereal, um, most dairy, those are some low glycemic index examples. Some higher, like medium to high glycemic index examples, like some fruits like bananas, grapes, cherries, watermelon or watermelon juices, sugar sweetened beverages, um, you know, so like um Gatorade, sodas, lemonades, all those good stuff. Good good in um, parentheses, or not parentheses, good inside of, you know what, quotes,
0: air quotes, quotes. quotes. Yeah. good,
1: yeah. Um, honey, your white rice, pasta, potatoes, breads, cereal, so those are some more of your higher glycemic index foods.
0: All right, and uh, your thoughts on people eating primarily low glycemic? Mm-hmm, so that is
1: a wonderful question as well, following up, so... I think that the glycemic index is, it can be a valuable tool if used appropriately. So there are times where an individual will see more benefit out of choosing a lower glycemic diet and then times where they'll see benefit out of choosing a higher glycemic diet. So, for example, let's say you finish a very challenging strength session. You know, you do a lot of sets, you do a lot of reps, So high volume, high intensity, you're working your multi-jointed compound movements. You can see benefit from including higher glycemic foods post-exercise to help elevate your blood glucose quicker, stimulate that insulin more effectively so that fuel can be stored in your muscle glycogen and it can be used to help repair your muscle tissue a little bit more effectively. So post-exercise, great example to use high glycemic index foods. Um, other times, generally away from exercise or on rest days, um, really choose lower glycemic index foods, um, just because obviously you don't need a heightened blood glucose if you're sitting on the couch watching cops.
0: Agreed. Um, I'm glad you answered that way. That's generally how I eat. So, <laughs> I was worried we were going to start butting heads in a minute, but um, yeah, good stuff.
1: Uh, all right, Great so think alike, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I'll ask you. I'll ask you some more pointed questions at the end if we have time. But uh, let's kind of move on to supplements. So, mm-hmm. what are the kind of the top supplements you'd recommend for an OCR
1: athlete? That is a wonderful question as well. So, there are a handful that I think really any athlete will see benefit out of using, and right. then there. Let's oh, also
0: okay. let's also start with whatever you think is kind of the most important. And then mm-hmm. kind of go down. So you know, if if listeners are tuning in, they can be like, all right, well, I need to go buy X first, then Y, then Z, and then if I have extra money, I'll buy you know A, B, and C, etc.
1: Bingo. So I think some of the most important supplements. I think a general multivitamin would be of advantage to nearly all athletes, and I say this because. Like, ordinarily, we're supposed to get all of our nutrition from our diet. And I stand strictly with that with my clients. I'm like, a multivitamin is not an excuse to eat like crap. It's not an excuse to omit certain foods. It's more of a safety net so that if you have some, you know, days where you're not hitting your needs or you might, you know, fall short, let's say you consume 92% of something and not 100%, obviously we would want to consume as close to 100% as possible, So taking a multivitamin will help bridge that small gap. So it's not there to provide 100%, just kind of work as a a buffer. Um, And as far as multivitamins, like, you don't have to buy, like, the most expensive one on the shelf because, again, it's just it's marginally filling in those gaps. So just going with, like, your generic multivitamin, you'll be fine. Like, your men's one-a-day active or, you know, as it would apply to females as well. Um, Following that, these two are a close tie for me, but I would say one of them is regional dependent. I'll start with that one. So vitamin D, um, definitely you will see a lot of individuals, especially those who live in the north or have desk jobs who aren't getting out that often. You'll see, I wouldn't say deficiency, but I would definitely say suboptimal inadequacy, deficiency is is a rough term to use. So when people are like, oh, I'm deficient in this, and it's like, well, clinically you're not deficient, but you're definitely suboptimal. But consuming vitamin, well, I'll backtrack. If individuals don't know, vitamin D can be synthesized through your skin, through direct contact with sunlight. So if you are a lucky individual who lives in a sunny place, and you expose your arms, your legs, your face to sun at least, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a day, full sunlight, mostly all seasons, you're probably going to be pretty solid. Um, you might be inside the ideal range for health benefit. But let's say, like, I used to live closer to Cleveland and Ohio. I didn't get a lot of sun. I worked inside a lot, very cloudy, especially during the winter. I know I was suboptimal in vitamin D, so I saw a lot of benefit through supplementing with a vitamin D3 supplement, and then as far as the amount, I would encourage an individual follow up with a dietitian for a more specific amount. I would encourage an individual to get their serum vitamin D checked to make sure, you know, are they really deficient, because vitamin D is fat-soluble, so... You won't be able to rid yourself of it if you are consuming too much as easily. Um, but I will say vitamin D toxicity is extremely rare. Um, just don't consume anything crazy like 10,000 international units a day. Like I will say generally healthful, you can get away with 2,000 or 4,000 per day if you fall in the solid category of individuals who are most likely suboptimal. But check with a dietitian. Like maybe you even need more, and that's where – working with a dietitian and checking your serum lab, lab values will be of importance how. So the reason why I would encourage individuals looking in the vitamin D, it's very cost-effective, A. B, there is documented research showing that in athletes there is reduced incidence of fracture, increased insulin sensitivity, and secretion, which may potentially help with muscle growth and recovery, improvements in body composition, And potentially an increase in serum testosterone. And when I see, like, say, potential increase, it's nothing crazy. But you know, it's a helpful marginal increase that may influence body composition. That's completely legal, completely healthy, and safe. Um, Following that, so vitamin D very important. Um, Even if you're getting a whole lot of sun, get it checked. Like I live now, I live in sunny North Carolina. Um, I still get mine checked to determine what is optimal for me to take as far as supplement usage. Um, Going on to fish oil, so many benefits from fish oil. Um, Like we alluded to in our previous podcast, a constituent omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil will be your EPA and your DHA, and those in combination will work to help Improve your performance through reduction and in inflammation post exercise and just general cellular reduction or cellular inflammation. So that's systemic and related to muscle tissue. Um, there is improvements in cognitive function, improvements in cardiac function, um, and those are really the big reasons. Like there's also a lot of other research going into potential improvements in body composition, delaying of certain cognitive disorders, like um, they're delaying of, let's say, Alzheimer's, dementia. And then as well, I want to say there's some research that talks about fish oil and multiple sclerosis. Don't quote me on that. But if there were like three big ones that I think any athlete in the field could benefit from taking, look into those.
0: Sounds good. All right, now let's uh, – so are those supplements going to differ based off you know, someone's weaknesses? So let's say you have a someone who's coming from a running background but doesn't have a strong upper body, so they're not very good at obstacles versus someone coming from a strength training background and is just getting into cardio.
1: I think those three will, across the board, help any athlete, OCR, endurance strength athlete, and there's there's a fair amount of research going into that, but I do have a pretty comprehensive list of optional supplements that will differ depending on goal. If you would like me to go down that rabbit hole,
0: uh, yeah, let's kind of let's try to let's touch on it briefly. So let's go one. A couple supplements for the the runner turned OCR athlete, and then a couple supplements for the uh, strength athlete turned OCR athlete.
1: All righty, wonderful areas to kind of. Divide it. Let me think. So let's talk about the runner going to OCR athletes. Someone, let's say this runner wants to work on their strength, potentially build muscle, um, some supplements that they will definitely see benefit from. And I know uh, Jared and I have talked about some of these in the past um, off podcast, of course. So creatine monohydrate, of course, very helpful for improvements inside of power output, recovery cell volume, hydration, cognitive function, and there's even research demonstrating improvement in depression. So for all these reasons, creatine monohydrate can be very advantageous for an athlete that is looking to improve their strength performance or even their their very short-term pre-glycolytic performance, like your zero to ten seconds, like that initial burst. Um, with that being said, there is an associated gain of weight associated with water retention, but in my opinion, and this, again, this is my opinion. So regardless of strength or endurance athlete, I think the benefits outweigh that potential increase of marginal few pound weight gain. So I will, I will note that, but, um, moving forward for someone that is more concerned with, um, their strength performance, I would encourage them to consume citrulline. And this has been shown to improve workout volume or your ability to go longer in workouts, um, reduction in fatigue, decrease delayed onset muscle soreness, increased production of nitric oxide or your NO. And so this one as well, even though it would apply a little bit more towards strength, um, it can apply as well to running endurance and running capacity. There is a, a marginal amount of research on that showing, I want to say, reduction in RPE and a decrease in, um or an increase in time to exhaustion on runs. But don't quote me on that. But that is one that you can see benefit with regardless. But I think it's a little bit more closer tied to your strength athlete. And then your creatine and your I, citrulline will, oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I'll, uh, I, I'm not going to recall the specific studies, but I'll, I will say that citrulline uh, and creatine are both common in you know, pre-workout supplements because, because of some of the reasons you stated. so.
1: Exactly. And then um, piggybacking off of that, those two work synergistically with your beta alanine which will improve your endurance, prolong time to exhaustion, reduction in your RPE. So very similar to your citrulline, but through different mechanisms. So like your citrulline, your beta alanine, and your creatine all complement each other. So if you are a strength athlete, you will see a lot of benefits out of using those in combination in the right amounts. And again, this is something meet with a sports dietitian. Um, and really get some more specifics on how much you should be taking.
0: And I'll also add, I know we talked about it on the last podcast, but you know these pre-workout type stuff, if you're going down that route, that and fat burners and uh, testosterone boosters are most likely to contain banned substance. So make sure you're one reading the label, two checking it against the WADA banned list, and then three, um, I can't remember what th- I don't know what I was gonna say for three. But anyway, be careful, right? The um, oh, you know, some some supplements now have, you know, like the cleared by, you know, third party agency, essentially, there's like a sticker or, uh, you know, a logo kind of on there. So, exactly. something good to watch, watch out for.
1: Yeah, definitely look for that third party testing. Um, and then I will say, so I, like, when I was, you know, in my past life as a bodybuilder, I would do a lot of different supplements. Now... Personally, I think I see more benefit out of doing individual supplements and kind of making my own cocktails. Um, I've even had some of my buddies and some of my athletes use some of these formulas that I create specific for them. And, you know, anecdotally, not that I did research behind it, but anecdotally, they they saw a lot of performance improvements. And then by hell, so... Uh, moving on from then because I will go down the rabbit hole with those. I'm like a, I'm like a wind up car. Just Spin that knob, put me on the floor and I'll go for, for 20 minutes. Um, So in general, like going back to supplements, as, as Evan alluded, his three points. And then I will also say um, avoiding proprietary blends. That's a big one. Like if you see a supplement says it contains all of these and it's kind of just in that paragraph and it doesn't say how much of each, um, I probably wouldn't use that because let's say if it has creatine, you know, creatine monohydrate, and then next to it it says sand. You're like, well, I don't know if I'm consuming 100%, you know, 90% creatine monohydrate and 10% sand, or 50% creatine and 50% sand. Generally, by the rules of conduct, they have to list the Ingredient with the most first and then in descending order, but even if it's like 51% creatine and then 49% sand, like, like just avoid those blends. Um, excessive fillers, I won't talk too much about filler ingredients. Um, you know, inadequate dosing, and again, this is when you have to be your own investigator and look into how much dosing is good for you through a dietitian or through your own research. And then I will also say excessive levels of stimulants like your xanthines and inside of that is your caffeine uh your theobromine things like that so definitely be aware of some of those inside your supplements and inside of wada for ocr um there there are a couple of the stimulants that are on the wada list like one that keeps popping in my head is like one three dimethyl that was really yeah. popular uh
0: that was the the stimulant in jack 3d the old formula right so it sometimes it's listed as that sometimes it's listed as dmaa and then sometimes it's listed as geranium root
1: yes exactly jack that, that that was uh that was my intro to the pre-workout realm <laughs> so
0: when i funny story i walk into a supplement or gnc you know, and I, was, I go to buy, like, my typical caffeine-based pre-workout because I, I know what caffeine is, right? I, I can identify the ingredients on the label, so that's what I stick with. Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, oh, you need to try this. And I was like, what's that? He's like, Jack 3D, it's it's new. And I, I was like, okay. I was like, well, what's in it? And he's like, oh, well, but you know, starts giving his GNC spiel. He's like, <laughs> he's like, it's awesome. He's like, when I take it, I feel like I can throw a, a Mack truck across the highway. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to throw a Mack truck across the highway. I just want to <laughs> lift a little bit more weight and not feel tired when I'm in the gym. So... <laughs> I passed on the Jack 3D, but I know uh, a lot of my, my friends that were uh, soldiers used to, used to love that stuff. So,
1: Man, I was young, I was dumb, and uh, let me and tell you... Side,
0: n- I, also, on a side note, it used to not be on the band list. They added it, um, I want to say like a couple of years ago. So I think when Jack 3D came out, I don't think it was on the band list, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, it wasn't until 2011, 2012 ish, where they added that ingredient to water ban list. Yeah, I want to say because I remember that was like that was around the time I was doing some bodybuilding and it got really big and I was like I had half a container of jack and I'm like eh well I got to throw this in the pail flush it down the toilet. But going on um, because we'll we'll talk too much about the old bodybuilding days and reminisce and have too much fun with that. But um, so a little bit more for your strength athletes entering in OCR, trying to improve potentially your aerobic capability. So as I mentioned before, citrulline will definitely be one to include in your stack for that. Beetroot, beetroot has gotten super popular due to the dietary nitrates and the improved NO production. But I will say like 90% of your products out there containing beetroot is, like, drastically underdosed. Like, for you to consume enough beetroot from a supplement, the serving size of that is probably going to be an ounce of dried beetroot, if not more. So, again, check and make sure you're actually getting enough to stimulate that clinical benefit. And, like, the way I describe it, like, on beetroot and off of beetroot, is it helps me discover a new gear because I feel like I can run my normal pacing but with less intensity. Like, it's like, if this pace is normally, like, an 8 out of 10 and I take my beat root, maybe it'll be, like, a, a 7 out of 10. It's not, like, a huge difference, but I can kind of find an extra gear towards the end to push a little bit harder. And, you know, that works hand-in-hand hand with the citrulline. So, like, citrulline, um, especially if you're taking with, like, like the mallet compound, it's a little bit sour, so like when you combine that with beetroot, you know, it it could be already providing some flavor, because just taking beetroot powder, beetroot juice can taste like dirt, (laughs) sawdust. So
0: so how how much actual beet juice, if I'm just drinking straight up beet juice, how much do I need to uh, get a performance benefit?
1: Oh, Lord have mercy. So... And then that goes down the rabbit hole, too. It depends on what genus of beet and the quality of beet. But I will say I do powdered because it's more cost-effective. And for most powders, if you take approximately 25 to 30 grams of the powder, mix it in 12 to 16 ounces of water – um, that will be relatively tolerable and that will put you in that clinical benefit range for your beetroot. And, you know, if you if you go to the Whole food store, you find a recordable vendor that's third-party tested and you buy your beetroot, you're probably going to be okay.
0: All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and plug uh, one of the Conquer the Rotler Pro Team sponsors, Juice Performer, because they make straight-up beet juice and uh, it turns my pee red. So <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah. So I... <laughs> I would yeah. I'd always drink it and then, you know, you like you go exercise and you go about your day and then you forget that you drank it that morning. So you go to pee, and it's like I mean it's just red and you're like, oh my god, I'm internally <laughs> bleeding! The horror. <laughs> so um, yeah, that that's always a surprise and it also uh, turns your bowel movements red. Um, so that's, I like that. It, it lets me know it's working or at least it's dying. It's dying my insides a different color.
1: Exactly. So if if you're your own human litmus test, you know it's working.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'll also plug. Uh, so my my sponsor, Hammer Nutrition, has a pre workout supplement. It has, but it's pre workout designed for cardio, right? So it's not full of caffeine. It's not going to make you jittery. Uh, but it does have some, uh, you know, beet powder in there and some other some other stuff, kind of bunch of supplements that have some scientific backing that's supposed to help. You know, with blood flow and vasodilation and all that good stuff. So it's called fully charged. I think it's pretty good. I like it. I take it before Schroeder races. So, and give them a shout out. All right,
1: keep going. Sounds like good stuff. Um, so also strength athlete coming into exercise for aerobics for improving their capability. So this is one that is often looked over and it surprises me because there's a lot of research out there. It's not necessarily a supplement, but you can take it in supplemental form. Dark chocolate, like the flavanols and epicatechins in it will improve NO production. And it's like clinically significant. And the amount of chocolate, like dark chocolate that you have to eat for like the clinical significance is not a lot. And here's the other kicker. Like it doesn't have to be immediately pre-exercise like you will see more optimal benefits if you consume it you know in the hours leading up to exercise but if you just have like a good dietary intake of a high quality dark chocolate like you're gonna see improvements in no production so that's like another off the wall one um as well let's say for example um Essential amino acids instead of branched chain amino acids during longer runs. I know a lot of individuals will supplement with their BCAAs because they're like, oh yeah, it's gonna keep me, you know, anabolic and it's gonna prevent, you know, break down my muscle. There, like inside of longer runs, if you're doing aerobics of greater than two hours, there is some incidence of that. So you may see benefit from doing your essential amino's more so than the branch chain amino's. And then, so, of course, you, you have your nine essentials in there. But then as well, there each of them have different functions. You still have your BCAAs inside of that amino blend, inside the EAAs, or, yeah, EAAs. But um, some of them have different functions. Let's say, for example, phenylalanine is converted into tyrosine in your body, which for endurance exercise it will improve cognition, increase time to exhaustion, and clinically reduced rate of perceived exertion. So as far as, like, endurance benefit for performance, as well as um, decreases in catabolism, try your essentials. Um, and, again, this is for, like, your long workouts. Like, if you're, like, running for, like, 30 minutes, you don't need 10 grams of essential amino acids. Like, like... Like, just, like, be, I, I don't know. I, it, for me, it sounds like common sense sometimes when I say this, but I know for a lot of individuals, they just don't, you know, they don't know, and they can fall victim to a lot of these things. Um, so I would say those are some big ones. Like, there's also some other, I guess you could say, fringe supplements that are going to be a benefit for other, you know, there's, like, some joint general anti-inflammatories. Um, there's some adrenal fatigue and adaptogens for some of your very high-volume athletes. Um, but I won't go too in depth with those, but just know that there are a lot that can be tailored specific to you, depending on your needs as an athlete. And that kind of goes into Dr. Helm's hierarchy of nutrition that I mentioned at the beginning, like at the very tip of the, of the nutrition pyramid is your supplements. But before that, always make sure that you have all those other bases covered before you decide you know, throwing $200 a month in the supplements, like make sure you have a good diet before you're going to waste your money on supplements.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was actually about to bring that up and ask you a question specifically related to that because I know, again, uh, with military background and, you know, we go to deployments and people would just be dropping money on supplements and we'd just be eating like hot garbage at the at chow wall, <laughs> right? Just like, you know, fried foods and there's just... They just don't have the selection of healthy foods uh, to really get the benefit of a lot of that stuff. So I remember having a lot of supplements uh, uh, on some of my deployments. Yeah. Another, another. I'll also share that kind of reminded me of another funny story. So going back to the the pre-workout. So you know, we used to get. I used to work as QRF, so quick reaction force, right? So you're you're standing around and you you have your radio, and someone calls you and is like, "All right, you know." you have to go do X, Y, or Z, you know, whether it be, uh, go court on an IED or explosive device, basically, uh, you know, you escort the explosive okay. ordnance guys out there to this, dismantle. Sometimes we would be go on a raid. Sometimes it would be, you know, drive the colonel back to the next base. So, so you can't, you can't plan when these things go. And, you know, a lot of times we'd like to work out at night. So, you know, we take our, our pre-workout, our caffeine-based pre-workout with all the beta alanine that makes like your skin tingle and the niacin which flushes your skin and makes you like red and we take that and then like your radio would go off and you'd be like son of a yeah you know, so you go up you go up to the uh yeah, the, the talk where the uh where they're they're giving you briefings and you're like you're like oh please let it be a raid please and you're like sweating and like your skin's tingling you're like oh come on let it be a raid and then they're like oh we just need you to escort the colonel up the street and you're like damn it come on Like I'm, I'm, I've so much energy. So uh,
1: you pick up the colonel and you start squatting (laughs) with them on your back. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So that that happened more than once, uh, not only to me but some of my friends. And it's it was always it was always a funny thing. You know, you go out getting ready to go, and you'd be like, you'd be like, yeah, Mike. uh, Mike took his pre-workout already. He's uh, he's not doing too well. He'd be like, oh, he's like, let's do this, let's do this mission. (laughs) You're like, calm down, Mike. So good times.
1: That that's always rough. Like you, you take your pre workout, and then you get your car that drives to the gym, and your battery dies, and you're like,
0: "No." Yeah, or you're you're stuck in traffic or something. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm sure many people can empathize uh, similar situations.
1: I'm sure we have a lot of followers there, like shaking their heads, like, "Man, this is a daily occurrence for me." <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think you, uh, I think we had a lot of good information in this podcast. Um, maybe got pretty scientific-y for some of the listeners. Uh, but I think some probably really enjoyed that. Um, definitely, want to have you on back at some point, and maybe next time we'll do kind of a listener Q and A. So we'll ask for some questions, so listeners can ask some specific questions, and then you know if you need some clarifying data, we'll you'll uh, comment below to get that clarifying data, and you can kind of get some more specific answers. But other than that, um, if you want to get actual Uh, nutrition invite from luke definitely reach out to him as you can see he knows a ton of information based off this podcast and the last time he was on so uh, definitely reach out to him before we go luke any people company sponsors you want to thank stuff like that
1: of course so i will first of all i will thank strength and speed you guys are awesome absolutely love the team shameless plug Um, moving forward, I know a bunch of my buddies from Cobra, the Cleveland Offscore Racing Alliance, are listening to this. So, uh, we are definitely getting out there trying to make a a change in the world for the better. So, um, thanks guys for listening, throwing you guys a shout out, keep up the wonderful things you all do. Um, I would also like to thank, I mentioned her once before, my fiance. She puts up with my shenanigans and, (laughs) I'm sure she's going to shake her head listening to this. Like, why is he talking about me? But you know, she is. Uh, she is the rock on which I stand. So that definitely helps, and she uh, she helps provide some validation when I'm like, should I do this race? Should I? You know, she's she's definitely the support there, saying you know, do what you want, and I'll be there right behind you. So uh, I love her, and just shouting out to her, of course, friends, family, um, all my buddies I race with. Um, my, my smaller, more, I guess you could say, intimate group of racers, Team Kent Touch This, you all know who you are, I won't explain any further, um, but otherwise, you know, just the obstacle racing community in general, you all are wonderful, thank you for welcoming me into the community and your races, and you all are great people, period. Drops mic.
0: Nice. So Luke has also written an article for Strength and Speed. So if you head over to the Strength and Speed website and click on the information tab, uh, you can click on articles. And then there's – on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll see basically authors from all the different articles. So you can click on Luke's name. He's got a great article about zinc. Um, What was the catchy tagline you came up with? Do you remember for the Um, article?
1: God. Um, Oh,
0: the missing supplement in your diet? It's not what you zinc? Something like that?
1: um, Like, decrease exercise performance. The answer might not be what you think.
0: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Play on words. <laughs> so uh, definitely go over and check out that article. I just released – well, I'm not sure when I'll actually publish this podcast, but I just released two articles as of recording this. One of them was the World's Toughest Motor Comparison article, so it compares the four years of Vegas, kind of showing which one's harder based off all these different you know, attributes, weather, obstacle difficulty – start time x-factor stuff like that Um, so you can go check that out you can go check out my ultra ocr grand slam lessons learned so i showed what my results were from doing six 24-hour ocrs over the course of a year and then i pointed out some lessons learned uh, that i thought were pretty interesting um about you know getting sick and recovering immediately after races and you know the importance of recovery, and you know how important the mental game is when you're actually racing for that long. And then at the end of the article, it has a teaser for my next book. So definitely go over and check that out. I will make you read it, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because I'll I'll plug it plenty of times in the future. Last one: uh, strength and speed development. De- eh, strength and speed development team. Uh, applications open either probably before this comes out so definitely head over and check that out if you want to know more about the strength and speed development team you can check out the post that's on our page or you can go listen to the podcast episode titled sarah langoni and fit challenge or something like that uh, where she talks about what the development team is Um, so basically it gives you free access into the strength and speed uh, dev team group and Luke's in there. We've got some. We got Jared in there. We got a bunch of other personal trainers. We got a bunch of the Conquer the Gauntlet Pro team is in there. Uh, Kevin Riggy's in there, who just finished third at uh, Tough Mudder X, which when it was televised. Uh, we got a couple other. Like I said, a couple other gr- great group of guys in there. So uh, created it so there's this safe place to answer, ask and answer questions. So if you post in one of these large OCR community groups. A lot of times you'll get all sorts of answers, ranging from "this is great advice" to "this is okay advice" to "like this is actually bad advice." Like you probably shouldn't listen to this guy. Um, the athletes and the strength and speed dev team all generally, if they disagree, they at least have some sort of facts to back it up. <laughs> so you know you're getting pretty good advice um, for free, which which is nice. So the the dev team you can apply and get in that way. Uh, we also have a pay option, so. Um the pay option is there basically to essentially to keep riffraff out, right? So if I just <laughs> opened it up to everyone, you know, again, you'd have the same problem that you have in other groups where there's just dozens and, you know, maybe hundreds of people in there, you know, shouting their own opinion, uh, without really any anything to back it up. So, uh, there is a pay option if you end up applying for the dev team and do not get in. And then on top of that, as I get benefits from sponsors that they don't mind me redistributing, uh I pass them off to the team Uh, We also post uh, weekly workouts in there and um, a lot of pre-race advice. So stuff on, you know, like the back-to-back OCR World Championships when you're racing those back-to-back days, a bunch of, you know, kind of recovery and nutrition information of things you can do to make sure you're at your maximum performance on race day. And then as we get close to the big events like World's Toughest Mudder or, you know, Toughest Mudder, I post kind of some tapering advice to make sure, again, you're peaking on race day and you're not showing up exhausted and tired. So check out the dev team. Uh, if you have want, if you also have more questions about it, you're welcome to ask me or you know Luke's on there. Uh, some of our other guests have been on there: Leah Hensley, uh, Chris Belvin, also from the Battlecore team. Um, Jared's in there. Who else? I don't know. A lot of people in there. So check us out, Luke. Any final words?
1: I think I'm pretty set, man. Uh, I think we did a great job really elaborating on these topics.
0: Cool. Again, thanks for being on, and we will talk to you later.
1: Sounds great.